0: Isaiah seven, on page seven of your order of worship, and he said, "Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign: behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." O men are like grass; their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our Father, as we have already prayed, I want to return to you with heavy heart over um, our Commonwealth. I want to pray for those waking up this morning again to the devastation, particularly for those who have lost loved ones, for the churches in Western Kentucky that they would rise up as sources of healing. Pray for friends from Western Kentucky uh, who I know will be listening online to this sermon. May it bring comfort. Oh, God, have mercy on our state. Now, as we turn to your word, we pray that the good news of God with us would overwhelm your people this morning. Would it humble the proud? Would it exalt the lowly? Would it bind up the broken? Would it bring the wayward home? Would it stir the saints and save the lost? You have come, O Emmanuel, and you have left your Holy Spirit as the indwelling of your presence until your return. And so you're with us. You are with us in this moment. May we sense it, may we know it, may we feel it. And would you change us by it? Through Christ we pray. Amen. So we're in week two of our Advent series from the book of Isaiah, looking at the most famous uh, prophecies of the coming Messiah. Last week, we looked at the promise of the Messiah unto us. This week, the promise that the Messiah is with us. Something every parent knows to expect during the uh, holiday season are all these children Christmas performances that we get to attend. I went to uh, my first last week, got uh, two more this week, and they're always a wonderful time. But something I've noticed about all of them is that every kid, especially in the elementary years, every kid does the exact same thing when they get up on stage. The teacher is trying to get their attention, get them to focus, but they're not looking at the teacher and they're not focusing until they have searched the crowd and found their parents. It happens every time. You can see their little eyes scanning the room because before they are ready to perform, they want to know that mom and dad are there watching. And you can always tell the moment when they find them, many will wave, uh, the more reserved ones will just give a little sheepish grin. Uh, there's always the one that just flat out yells, hey, mommy, you know, that deal. My favorite was last year when uh, a little boy saw, finally saw his dad and he just started flexing <laughs> in front of everybody. And what's going on in that? What's, what's going on there? There is something about their parents' presence, the knowledge that their parents are there with them in that moment. That they need. If they are scared, they need their presence to calm them. If they are sad, they need their parents' presence to comfort them. If they are insecure, they need their parents' presence to affirm them. If they are happy, excited, they need their parents' presence to rejoice with them. And this is, of course, what is so heartbreaking about the reality of orphans in our world. The thought of a child alone the thought of a child longing desperately for a parent's presence and finding none is just heartbreaking to think of but in many ways this is all of our stories we were made for God we say that all the time but what does that even mean it means that on an ultimate level it means that we are made for his presence we are made to be loved by him to be comforted by him to be glad in Him, to be protected by Him. We were made to be with God. And yet the fall has severed us from God. Sin has torn humanity and God asunder so that what we must have is no longer immediately available to us. We are in an orphaned race, a fatherless people, all of us like those kids on stage frantically searching the landscape of our lives for the presence of our God, and yet tragically, he is missing. Well, the prophet Isaiah has a word for orphaned humanity this morning. He heralds the most unlikely event that will yield the most unbelievable news. God will again be with us. Two things from this verse. We're going to start by just simply understanding the doctrine that God is with us, and then close by applying God is with us. So understanding and applying God with us this morning. Let's first understand the significance. Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The Bible's filled with miraculous conceptions. It's actually a fairly major theme in the Bible, but this one is unique. This is not like Abraham and Sarah, well, past childbearing years who conceive. This is a virgin conceiving a son, and there is so much significance to that. Now, before I get to the meaning, I do feel the need uh, to acknowledge what my skeptical friends listening in might be thinking. The Bible's filled with Miracles, a lot of them, obviously, but for whatever reason, this one seems uniquely fanciful to the skeptic. A virgin conception? You people actually believe that happened? And my answer is yes, yes we do. But I would just say that if you are skeptical of the supernatural, if you're skeptical of supernatural miracles and don't believe in God, then you yourself have an outlandish miracle at the foundation of your belief system. Granted, we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, but is that more ridiculous than the virgin birth of all existence? To deny a creator is to believe in a miraculous conception of the cosmos, the virgin birth of everything, that everything came from nothing, that without a creator we are asked to believe that nothing acted upon nothing, so that out of nothing came something that happens to be downright extraordinary, and I just don't have enough faith to believe in your miracle. And so, yes, I understand it is an outlandish claim, but we do believe it, and I want us to see its significance. We take it for granted, but have you ever wondered why it happened this way? Why didn't the Savior just show up like angels show up all throughout the Bible? Why conception? Why the womb? Why infancy and toddler years? Why not just skip all of that and just appear in the form of a a grown man, and do the important stuff. You know, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend to heaven. Well, because that's not true incarnation. That's not really God with us. True incarnation is not sympathizing with humanity, not just encountering humanity, not just experiencing humanity. True incarnation is joining humanity. And that is why the virgin conception is so important to our faith. Conception is obviously the union of two such that what is conceived is not half one party and half the other, but a synthesis that creates the fullest expression of the two. But Mary is only one, which is why when the angel came to Mary in Luke 1 and promised that she would give birth to the Messiah, she understandably says, uh, how? I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's the union of holy God and man. Our creed states that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and only in this way can what is conceived be fully God and fully man. If the Messiah just showed up from heaven in human form, he would not be fully man. If the Messiah was conceived by Joseph and Mary and then received some kind of special anointing from heaven to become the Messiah, then he would not be fully God. To be fully God and fully man demands exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit comes upon the virgin and God incarnate is conceived. And only in this way can the prophet say that the son of a virgin is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, as you heard in our New Testament reading where Matthew gives that little detail to the prophecy, Emmanuel means God with us. Not a God who loves us, not a God who cares for us, not a God who accepts us, not a God who is for us. All of that is, of course, true. But these things can be true of a distant deity. But only here in the virgin birth of God is God actually with us. And that changes everything. Tolkien speaks of primary and secondary knowledge. Primary knowledge is our actual experience in the actual story that we inhabit. We know things because we ourselves experience things. Secondary knowledge is where good storytelling comes in. If a novel or a film is told well enough, the characters are well-developed, the details are rich, and so forth, if it's a good story told in a good way, then it will evoke secondary knowledge. Meaning we actually get caught up within the story as if we're experiencing the story ourselves. We cry with the story's tragedies. We laugh with the story's joys. We get chills with the story's drama. We relate to the story and experience the story almost as if we are in it. That's secondary knowledge. And when people think of God, that is how we typically think he relates to our story. It's not that he's not unmoved. He's very He's very interested in the story. He's very moved by the story, but it's secondary knowledge. He's not detached and uninterested. He's very interested, but only in secondary ways. But the virgin birth is God experiencing our story with primary knowledge. He knows our story because he is now a part of our story. God isn't relating to humans. God is human. What's the big deal with that? Why is that so important? That's what I really want us to spend our time on this morning. It's important that we understand the doctrine, but what I want to do more than anything is spend some time applying the doctrine. So let's turn there with the rest of our time, applying this truth of God with us. There's a lot I could say, but I've limited myself to three. Here are three amazing applications that are only true because God with us is true. We now know that God has come for us, God can relate to us, and God will never leave us. Let's ponder each of those. Virgin birth means that God obviously has decided to come for us. It goes without saying, but he didn't have to. He didn't have to come for us. In fact, he shouldn't have come for us. The right response to our rebellion would be to hand us over to the dreadful destiny apart from his presence. But instead, in the virgin birth, he has come for us. Now, depending upon where you are today, that news should land on you in one of two ways. When Mary is told that she is to give birth to the Messiah, she bursts out in song, famously bursts out in singing. And what's interesting about her rejoicing is that she says this news that the Messiah is to be born is going to humble the proud and exalt the lowly. That's an interesting application. How does the news that God has come for us humble the proud and exalt the lowly? Well, if you are proud, self-reliant, religiously self-righteous, if you are impressed by yourself and look down upon others, the news that God has come for you is an offensive declaration because it says you've actually been living a lie your whole life. Your pride is lying to you. You may have fooled others and yourself into thinking that you don't need God as some religious crutch, that religion is for the weak. But God coming for you means you do need God. You do need his rescue. You aren't as strong, as moral, as great as you think you are. And so he has has you here this morning to rebuke your pride with the news of his coming. You are desperate, so desperate that it took unimaginable efforts, God in flesh, to rescue you. Please let the news humble you out of your pride before it's too late. Yes, he has come for you. Yes, he is after you, but he will not be refused forever. There comes a point where God, will give you what you have always wanted and hand you over to a life of proud self-determination. He will not be spurned forever, and he will say to you, if you want to go at this thing alone with your own self-reliant strength, so be it. That may be what you desire, but be forewarned that in desiring that, you are desiring your own hell." So to the proud, the news that God has come for them might be offensive because they don't think they need God to come for them. They think they've got it. I pray the offensive news will humble you as it is intended to do. But there's another way to view his coming. Mary says that it will exalt the lowly. To the poor and needy, to the burdened and troubled, to the sinful and shameful, to the ruined and weary, to the fearful and hopeless, the virgin birth says, fear not, O weary beloved ones, our God has come for you. No matter the cost, he has come for you. We are talking about the creator of all things, confined to an amniotic sack. Clearly, there is nothing he will not do. No links he will not go, no measures he will not take to get you back. So let it exalt you this morning. Let it strengthen your weary bent shoulders and lift your shame-filled hearts. So the first application of God with us is that it means that God has come for us. The second is that God can now relate to us. Why is it important that we have a God who can relate to our existence, again, in primary knowledge ways? Well, what it does is it now transforms our existence. Let me show you what I mean. Consider what this does to the pleasures of life. Religions... Tend to have a Gnostic bent to them. Gnosticism teaches that this material world is a problem, that fleshly desires, pleasures, and joys are evil and they should be denied. The goal of life is to escape earthly pleasure for a higher spiritual reward. That's pretty much every religion, which is why religions make for a boring, miserable, and guilt ridden life. But the virgin birth tells a different story. Jesus experienced this world with all of its joys and pleasures, and in this way, he has hallowed the joy and pleasure. God laughed with friends. God savored a good meal. At a wedding feast that ran out of wine, God made more so the feast could go on. God hugged. God sang. God told jokes. God properly enjoyed everything we enjoy, which means we are not allowed to call these joys of life wrong or even insignificant. Jesus enjoyed life, and you should too. This Christmas season, I hope you soak up every ounce of joy, because that is Christ-like. Or consider what this does to the mundane of life. Are you tempted to think that life is pointless? Maybe just a few big events and then a lot of wasted space in between. Well, to make that claim, then you're going to have to say that the vast majority of Jesus' life was meaningless. I love that. um, I love that uh, the vast majority of Jesus' life we know nothing about. 30 years truly before we know much of anything. That is 15,768,000 mundane minutes. What was he doing? Growing, learning to walk, learning to talk, playing with friends, going to school, learning a trade, chit-chatting, a lot of chit-chat, talking about the weather, completing the just the daily menial tasks of life, a lot of stuff that you think is pointless. But it can't be pointless because every single moment of Christ's life was infinitely significant. So because Jesus lived the mundane, the mundane is also now hallowed. Consider what this does to the suffering in our life. It's obviously huge for our state right now. I, like you, find myself in deep mourning over the commonwealth that I love. And when tragedy comes upon us, everyone wants answers. There's nothing wrong with that. Scripture has a lot to say about suffering and tragedy, and there are answers to discover, but the ultimate answer... Because we don't know, nor can we know. That's, That's the main takeaway from the book of Job. All of his friends are trying to explain the meaning of Job's suffering. And then God shows up and essentially says, I'm God, you're not. I know what I'm doing, you cannot. So why did a tornado destroy our state this weekend? I don't know. But God with us lets us add this detail to the answer. Tim Keller likes to say the incarnation allows us to say I don't know the meaning of suffering but I know what it doesn't mean it can't mean that God is detached and doesn't care it can't be that God is playing some maniacal game with creation it can't be that God doesn't love us or doesn't take our suffering and misery seriously If the virgin birth is true, none of that can be true. He loves us so much. He cares so deeply. He takes our suffering so seriously that he himself was willing to enter into it. Whatever he's doing, he's playing by the same rules. No matter the pain, no matter the grief, no matter the tragedy, God now always offers this comfort. I too know what it's like to suffer. In fact, I suffer more than anyone will ever have to. So, God has come for us. God can relate to us. And then lastly, God will never forsake us. I don't think we doubt God's love. I think we doubt the extent of God's love. In other words, we don't doubt his mercy. I think we just wonder if his mercy will run dry. We don't doubt that he forgives. We just wonder how much forgiveness does he really have? We don't doubt that he even wants us. We fear that he's getting tired of us. He's committed. But just how committed is he? Well, the virgin birth says to us, if he was willing to go to such unimaginable lengths to have us, do you really think he's going to let us go? He gave up the riches, the eternal riches of heaven, for the womb of a virgin. And yet we think our puny doubts, sins, and struggles are going to derail the whole thing. Don't flatter yourself. No measure of your failure can compare to the measures that he has taken for you. Especially when you realize that his birth was only the beginning. You think God in the cradle is extreme? How about God on the cross? Why? Why is God willing to go to such lengths to get us back? Honestly, I don't know. But one thing we do know beyond a shadow of doubt is God is clearly crazy about you. You know, these Christmas performances, if you think the kids are fun to watch, you should watch the parents. So as their child is searching for them in the crowd, they are literally doing whatever it takes to get their child's attentions. I mean, social graces are out the room at a kid's Christmas performance standing, waving, making goofy faces, just acting ridiculous, all to assure their child that they are there, that they see them, that they notice them, that they love them, that they are proud of them. Their fixation on their child is even more intense than their child's fixation on them. Do you know what the virgin birth says to us? That is God's disposition toward us. virgin birth is ridiculous behavior for God. What is he doing? But it seems as if he can't help himself. Pure delight, complete joy, unrelenting love, a willingness to do whatever it takes to say, I see you and I love what I see. God is smitten by you. Smitten by you, brothers and sisters, and there is clearly nothing he will not do to be with us. But his pursuit is not over yet, is it? Now we find ourselves in the second age of Advent. Emmanuel has come, and Emmanuel shall come again. And when he comes, not by way of virgin birth, but clouds of glory. These are the words that will be be proclaimed. And I want you to notice the Emmanuel, the God with us language. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The reunion of God and man forevermore. In his first advent, Jesus made God with us possible. In his second advent, Jesus will make it an eternal reality. So we cry, come Lord Jesus, because we want to be with him. And Jesus shall surely answer that cry, because beloved, he wants to be with us. Let me pray. Lord, as we wait your second advent, and we do cry, come Lord Jesus, we want to be with you. As we wait for that answer, you have given this table, that you have promised in a mysterious way you will be with us. And so remember your promises and give us a taste of your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.